0: Do not work for f- the food that perishes, Jesus says. Then what should we work for, the crowd asks. For the past six years, my kids have attended a year-round school. This means that their summer break was only six, five to six weeks long. To some of you, especially those under 18, that might seem like a really short summer break, and in some ways it was. But for us, it worked well, because for five of those six years, I worked at my kids' school. And so we were able to share our summer break, short as it was, all together. This summer, however, has been slightly different. In just a few short weeks, my boys will start their new school in our new town, which means that this summer, for the first time in their memory, they have been experiencing a typical summer break. It is also the first time that I have worked full-time throughout the summer months. Lord have mercy on us all. (laughs) To say that we were unprepared for this new adventure would be an understatement. This summer has been and continues to be challenging for us as we navigate this unfamiliar terrain. There have been days when I felt a little bit like Jesus in Capernaum. Days when I looked at my boys and asked, why are you still here? Why are you not at school yet? Why do you keep asking me for food? Didn't I just feed you? Go play. Which brings me to the one particular challenge that I really did not anticipate this summer, the challenge of hunger. My boys are now in the preteen and teen years, and it's no great secret that growing boys have growing appetites. It is also no great revelation that when one is home all day long for days on end with no discernible schedule, meals become a fluid thing. On more than one occasion, I have arrived home from work ready to make dinner to discover that both the boys have only now just eaten lunch or that key ingredients for the dinner I planned on cooking were used to make a mid-morning snack. These discoveries did not go over well. At one point, I even threatened to make a list of how many servings of each item in our pantry and refrigerator they could have each day because my grocery bill was struggling under the demand of a self-service kitchen that was apparently open 24 hours, 7 days a week. But it wasn't just the hunger of grumbling stomachs that took me by surprise this summer. It was also their hunger for something to do, my boys' hungry, hunger for a sense of purpose, and my hunger for relationship. This year we were all completely unprepared for the amount of downtime the longer break would provide. And so just a few weeks into the break, boredom and apathy began to set in. Often I would come home from work to find the boys eyes had glazed over from the amount of time they had spent in front of a screen. I was reminded of that old Shel Silverstein poem in which a young boy, Jimmy Jett, turns into a TV set after watching too much television for hours and hours. You are turning into an iPad, I would half tease, half scold when I got home from work each day, feeling the all too familiar weight of mother guilt for not having planned the summer better and for not being home with them like all the summers previously. I was simultaneously frustrated and sad. I was frustrated that the boys were gorging themselves on too much media, and I was sad that I wasn't there with them. I had been spoiled by the slow routines and rhythms of our past summers and I missed those uninterrupted times that I had been able to spend with them without something always waiting in the wings for my attention. So I admit that we were unprepared. But how could I have known the hunger we would all experience? The spiritual soul hunger for meaning, for relationships, and the hunger to do something worthwhile with our summer. I am pretty confident that the things we struggled with this summer are just a small example of the sort of struggles that we all, as a culture, deal with every day. We all struggle with hunger. In Maslow's Pyramid, The Hierarchy of Needs, the physical need for hunger is one of the most basic primal hunger's needs that we have, and it must be met before growth and transformation can happen. Anyone who has been woken by a hungry and angry baby at 3 a.m. can attest to how primal this need is. But once that need is met and our bellies are full and we have the security of knowing that we will not perish from hunger, our needs begin to change. We grow. And as each level of need is satisfied, we move on to another level. But as happens in any growth experience, especially soul growth, there are plateaus and there are changes. There are setbacks, there are places where our growth gets stuck, and there are changes in our lives that cause us to experience this pyramid of needs like a game of shoots and ladders instead of just a steady incline. I would guess that for most of us here, the levels of hunger, the levels of need that we find ourselves visiting time and time again are the levels that deal with belonging, relationships, purpose, and meaning. These are the levels that my boys and I found ourselves languishing in this summer. And these are the things that as a culture we are also languishing in. These are the cravings of our souls. But all too often we are using the wrong things to feed them. Which is why I find Jesus' exchange with the crowd in today's gospel reading so interesting. Do not work for the food that perishes, he says. And I wonder... What is the food that perishes that we are feeding ourselves? What is it that we are using to try and quench our spiritual soul hunger? You know that hunger I'm talking about. It's the one that wakes you up in a cold sweat at 2 a.m. It's the one that taunts you in the car ride home from work, or the one that's always tapping the back of your mind while you're folding laundry and bathing the kids and mowing the yard. What is it that we are using to hush that nagging hunger? Is it our work? Our hobbies? Do we just spend too much time on our phones? Playing our games? Messing with our apps? Is it our favorite television shows? Do we look to shopping or cooking or organizing the linen closet or drinking or gossiping or sleeping too much? Do we look to other people demanding more of our relationships than possible? What are the things that we use to plug up all the leaky places in our hearts? What is it that we use to feed our loneliness and our fear and our boredom? For me, it is often my work, more projects, more busyness, more things on the calendar. For my boys this summer, it was more video games. I once asked a therapist why video game playing, especially violent video game playing, was such a popular hobby for boys and grown men. His answer made perfect sense and was intriguing. He said that video games, through the stimulation of their high-definition graphics and intense challenges, were providing men and boys with adrenaline stimulation that mimicked but did not replace the sort of adrenaline and stimulation that people experience when they engage in meaningful, purposeful, and challenging work. The problem that arises, though, is that the sensation created by playing the games is temporary and it has no lasting value which creates a bottomless pit of need to replicate the experience, which means that more video games must be played to keep the adrenaline pumping, and the games must become increasingly more risky, more violent, better designed, etc., to keep being able to mimic the sensation of meaning. Now, I'm not a video game naysayer. I don't think there's anything wrong with playing video games in moderation any more than I think there's anything wrong with eating cake or going shopping or being on Facebook or enjoying a nice Pinot Noir. But none of these things will sustain us. None of these things will fill up our spirits and satisfy our soul hunger because these are the foods that perish. Chances are that whatever we are trying to fill ourselves up with isn't full of the rich, spiritual, life-giving nutrients needed to sustain us. Just as our bodies crave and need certain nutrients, so do our souls and our hearts. This is what Jesus was saying to the crowd that day. He was telling them that they didn't need more signs and wonders. They didn't need the newest, most shiny, exciting thing. They didn't need a new car or the new game or a new app. They didn't need what they thought they needed. What they needed instead was to be open to what God was giving them, the presence of Christ. But the crowd isn't getting this. They still want more signs, more proof, more entertainment, more distractions. So they say, hey, Moses gave us manna in the wilderness. Come on. Trying to prod Jesus into giving them what they want. Trying to goad him into performing just one more wonder. But Jesus knows the game they are playing and he isn't taking the bait. He counters their challenge by reminding them that it was God that gave them manna in the wilderness, not Moses. And it is God who, through the presence of Christ, is providing the manna that they now need. You are not hungry for food and you do not need any more distractions, he is saying to them. What you need is to open your eyes and see the manna all around you. God's presence is here, right in front of you. What the crowd needed then and what we need now is manna. And unfortunately, there is nothing shiny, new, or sparkly, or distracting about manna. Often, manna requires work on our part. After all, it did not fall from heaven onto well-made tables set nicely for the Israelites to sit and have a feast. No, it fell on the ground. It fell around their dwellings. And every single morning, they had to get up and look for it. Every day, they had to work to gather it. God's presence, God's manna, will satisfy our hunger for meaning, our hunger for purpose. It will satisfy our hunger to be useful and wanted, our hunger to know and be known. It will fulfill our deepest hunger to live as we were uniquely created to be and live out the image of God in us. Manna is sustaining, fulfilling, enriching. It is the presence of God in our lives. Manna is the gift of grace and love and wholeness, and it will feed our deepest hunger. But how do we access the manna? How do we see and experience the presence of God in our lives? Well, first I think we have to start by correctly identifying our hunger. We have to be honest about those places in our lives where we are gorging ourselves on things that will not fill us up and misguided attempts to quench our spiritual soul hunger. This summer, my boys tried desperately to fill their hunger for meaning and purpose, their need to do something, by playing unforetold hours of video games and watching way too much of YouTube. And each day when I would come home and I declared screen time was over, they would emerge from the den looking like zombies, and then they would walk straight to the refrigerator, open the doors, and stare into the void. Because despite all that uninterrupted time playing those fun, thrilling, exciting games, the truth was they were still starving. They were starving for something real, something meaningful. They were starving, whether they realized it or not, for manna. They had spent their day gorging themselves on the food that perishes, and now they were famished. So we have to begin by asking ourselves, what are we hungry for? Are you hungry for meaning? Maybe for you it's a sense of purpose? Maybe you need feel a sense, a deep hunger to belong or to be known or to create. Maybe it's to be useful. So you pray, Lord, what am I hungry for? And then you open your eyes to what he shows you. And then once you have identified your hunger, this is when your prayer becomes, Lord, show me your manna. Help me be aware of your presence and help me get up each morning looking for it. Help me to do the work of gathering when I do find it, despite what it may cost me. So what are the things of God that sustain us? What does manna look like? In John, Jesus is saying that he, Christ, is manna. That when we follow him, then we are fed with life everlasting. So how do we find Christ? How do we see Christ and access his presence? We find Christ, we find manna, in both ways that are unique and common. My husband finds manna working out on our property even when it's 110 degrees. I do not understand it. Terry finds manna when she gets to engage in rich theological discussions. My friend Pansy finds manna in her garden. For me, I find manna when I put down my phone and turn off the computer and give the to-do list a break and say to Christ, okay, show me your manna. I find it in my house when my table is filled with people I love. I find it holding my grandmother's hand. I find it sitting on the couch in the lobby talking to whomever joins me. I find it on Wednesday nights with the youth when the ball gets stuck in the tree again and we're all reduced to giggle fits. I find it when I make myself stay in the chair and do the work that God has called me to through writing. I find manna when I visit the nursing home or when I take my friend with two sprained ankles to the grocery store. And I always find manna at the altar. Perhaps for some of you, manna looks like finding purpose through service, through helping with the food pantry or working at Bethlehem House or volunteering in the nursery. Perhaps it looks like going to Guatemala or helping raise money for Camp Mitchell. Perhaps God's manna lives in your neighborhood or works in the cubicle next to you. Perhaps you will find the sense of belonging you have been craving when you risk an authentic relationship with someone different than yourself, someone of a different religion or skin color or political ideology. Perhaps God's manna is waiting for you in your home. Perhaps you are overcommitted in and working for food that perishes, which is taking you away from the food that sustains you, your home life. Perhaps God's manna is waiting for you in the garden or on your trampoline or at the park or on the lake. Perhaps what you are hungry for is the awe and wonder and deep contentment that just comes from sitting and enjoying God's creation. I believe that just like in the time of Moses, manna is falling all around us. But we have to be intentional to look for it, to notice it, and to gather it. And we have to keep looking for it day after day. And this requires us to be present to our lives. This requires us to put down the things that we use to distract ourselves, to put down the food that perishes to put down the things that we use to try and fill up all the leaky places in our hearts, and to trust God enough to say, where is your presence today? Where is the manna? Because manna is unique, if you remember from the Old Testament stories, and that it cannot be stored up. You cannot save manna for another day. Manna is only good in the present, because manna is the present. Manna is the presence of God in our lives in the moment. And to experience this, we will have to put aside the rotting food that perishes and instead feast on the food of heaven. Amen.